This is the History of the World podcast with me, Chris Hasler. And you're listening to Volume 3, The Classical World. Episode 13, The Peloponnesian War, Part 1. on the History of the World podcast, we described the events that concluded the second Persian invasion of Greece and the subsequent aftermath, which in turn saw tensions simmer between the Greeks and the Persians. The Greeks had successfully repelled the Persians and sent them back to Asia, and it was thanks to the ability of the two greatest Greek polis, Athens and Sparta, being able to work alongside one another. Let's be honest, Athens and Sparta were like chalk and cheese. Neither polis particularly trusted the other, and both were ideologically different, with Athens showing more democratic traits and Sparta showing more totalitarian traits. The biggest issue between Athens and Sparta was the fact that they were geographically close to one another, Both were very influential and powerful and both presented the same potential threat to the security of the other one. Often smaller polis or estranged factions would approach one and play them off against the other. And we can see a great example of this kind of thing when we look back to episode 7 and 8 and the actions of the Alcmeonid family who were an estranged Athenian family trying to overthrow the Pisistratid tyranny who were ruling over Athens at the time. Their strategy for dealing with the situation would be to approach the Spartans and involve them in the situation which was really just an Athenian civil dispute. However, this is just one example of how two major nations in close proximity to each other will inevitably become involved in each other's politics and how two major nations in close proximity will always have a deep paranoia about what the other nation's intentions are. This is the fundamental basis for the escalation of what we call the Peloponnesian War which was essentially a rise in tensions between Athens and Sparta. Now, we have already been introduced to Athens and Sparta as emerging nation-states, but certainly during the 5th century BCE and while the Persian invasions of Greece were taking place, Athens and Sparta were actively trying to consolidate their positions in world politics by becoming as influential and as powerful as possible. So let's explore what each of them were doing. The Delian League Many will have their own opinions about how and why the Peloponnesian War took place and what the specific triggers were that sent the Greek world spiralling into conflict. Many of the Ionian cities of western Anatolia 
were sick and tired of being in the middle of the Aegean tensions and appealed to the two great Greek poles for support in standing against Persian aggression in the direct aftermath of the Battle of Mycale in 479 BCE. Athens understood the need to counter-attack the Persians at every opportunity to keep them at bay and were happy to step in and support the Ionians where necessary. The Spartans were never so quick to be outwardly aggressive. They were reluctant to be involved in the Battle of Marathon in 490 BCE and they were reluctant to be involved in the Battle of Plataea in 479 BCE. Their advice to the Ionians was to leave their homes in Anatolia and relocate. Sparta had been a major player during the second Persian invasion of Greece, leading both land campaigns at Thermopylae and Plataea and the naval exchange at Salamis. There is a strong argument to be made to suggest that the Spartans were the main reason why the Greeks ultimately won the battles on and around the Balkan Peninsula. So the Spartans had now gone from leading the Greek alliance to standing off from the alliance completely. A conference was arranged on the Cycladic island of Delos in 478 BCE to discuss the next steps without Spartan involvement. Those Greek poles that attended the conference in Delos would form the new alliance called the Delian League. There were literally hundreds of Greek poles in and around the Aegean Sea and the Propontis, which is the body of water between the Hellespont and the Bosporus, which in the modern world is called the Sea of Marmara. It would be very impractical to list them all, so you can imagine that many of them would have had a very limited ability in terms of their power and influence. I will be kind to the English-speaking listeners now, as I am guilty of trying to be respectful of Greek pronunciations at various times during the episodes. So the famous Athenian runner who was central to the story of the marathon race, I pronounced as Phedipides, instead of the more familiar Phedipides. In contrast though, I will refrain from calling the famous 5th century BCE Athenian historian Thucydides and opt for the more popular English pronunciation of Thucydides. I conceded many episodes ago that I would never be able to please everybody with these pronunciations. Thucydides was quite good at describing the relationship between Athens and other members of the Delian League. It became very clear very quickly that Athens needed to be the driving force behind the success of the Delian League and that the parties expected to contribute towards the League were more likely to be pressurised by Athens to uphold their part in the bargain. This would lead to Athens becoming the dominant party in the League and the League would become comparable to an Athenian empire. When the historically rebellious Cycladic island of Naxos attempted to leave 
the Delian League, in 471 BCE, the Athenians used aggressive means to prevent it. So you are welcome to make your own mind up whether this was a coalition of states or an imperial movement of Athens. The Peloponnesian League As we are already aware, there was a Peloponnesian League that was established by the Spartans long before the Greco-Persian Wars. The Spartans were already the clear instigators and leaders of the Peloponnesian League. Due to the opposition to Sparta, particularly by Argos, as we have examined previously when looking at the 6th century BCE politics of the Peloponnese, Sparta had to ensure that the other members of the League enjoyed benefits from being involved in the League. So even though Sparta was the boss of the League, they still needed to treat their allies within the League with respect to prevent them from looking to rivals such as Argos, the Achaeans and even Athens for better support. The alliance between Sparta and Athens during the Greco-Persian Wars has been suggested to be an expansion of the Peloponnesian League, which is historically referred to as the Hellenic League. In the battle of the two big Greek egos of Athens and Sparta, Athens would probably not want to suggest that they joined the Spartan alliance and that it was more of an agreement between the two parties. When the Greco-Persian Wars came to an end, the Spartans withdrew from the foreign ambitions that Athens had and chose to revert back to their previous status as the bosses of the Peloponnese and the Peloponnesian League, a self-preserving and defensive alliance of Greek polis. The Fortunes of the Two Polis By the end of the 470s, Athens had proven itself to be the dominant player of the Delian League, even defying and showing aggression towards troublesome members. Sparta had totally withdrawn from foreign affairs now that the threat of Persian invasion of their homelands had been repelled and they appeared to have no interest in pursuing them to keep them at bay, unlike the Athenians. The 460s saw a sequence of events that highlighted the concerns that Athens and Sparta had about each other's intentions. A large Greek island off the coast of Thrace called Thassos was a member of the Delian League. However, when Athens decided to sponsor a Thracian colony based around the city of Amphipolis, Thassos saw its own interests threatened and decided to defect from the League, also approaching Sparta for backup. The Spartans were certainly concerned by the imperial style of behaviour that the Athenians had demonstrated enough for them to be interested in supporting Thassos. However, a freak occurrence changed the course of history when in 464 BCE a huge earthquake rocked the city of Sparta and its surrounding area, possibly killing as many as 20,000 people. 
Now you may remember that during episode 8, we discussed how the Spartans became the dominant power of the Peloponnese by conquering the neighbouring Messenians during the 8th century BCE and consigning their citizens to a Spartan slave class where they would become the helots of Spartan society. The Spartans would regularly treat the helots as inferior human beings, subjecting them to condescending acts of brutality such as public beatings and even murders. When the earthquake hit Sparta, the helots saw this as an opportunity to get revenge for generations of Spartan mistreatment and revolted against their masters. This would mean that those Spartans who survived the earthquake would have had their hands full trying to resist the helot revolution and that support of Thassos would become a forgotten duty. Athens would crush and subjugate Thassos and there was nothing that anyone could have done to prevent it. The revolt of the helots became a serious problem for the weakened Spartans and so much so that they actually turned to their Greek neighbours for assistance in putting the helots down. However, when the Athenians answered the call and sent 4,000 men to assist the cause, the Spartans became very edgy and decided to send the Athenians back home. The fact that Athens decided to send help to Sparta is a huge quiz in itself. The fact that Sparta sent the Athenians back home was considered to be a disrespect. Athens would make alliances with Thessaly but also with Argos, a polis which stayed out of the wars with Persia and was always at odds with Sparta. The fact that Athens had made an alliance with Argos was an unashamed support of a rival of Sparta. It might have been no less than the Spartans deserved considering their intention to invade Attica before the fate-changing earthquake just a few years previous. Let's quickly take a look at some of the political figures of Athens during this period and how Athenian foreign policy shifted as a consequence. If we go back to the Battle of Marathon in 490 BCE, then we may recall that the main military strategist was a man called Miltiades, who would have been around 60 years old at the time. 20 years previous, Miltiades fathered a son called Chemon, who would become an important political figure. After the Athenian hero of the second Persian invasion of Greece, Themistocles was ultimately ostracised from Athens in the late 470s BCE, much of the anti-Persian programmes were commanded by Chemon. It was Chemon who drove the Persians away from western Thrace with a great victory at the Battle of Eurymedon in 466 BCE which led to Athens establishing the city of Amphipolis which as we have just discovered led to the rebellion of Thassos. It was Chemon who led the 4,000 Athenians to Sparta to support them 
in the Helot Rebellion, which, as we learned, Sparta sent back to Athens. Cimon would be ostracised on his return to Athens in 461 BCE. The man who was instrumental in the ostracisation of Cimon was his political rival, a man called Pericles. Pericles was a major advocate of those democratic reforms that were instigated by Clisthenes around 50 years previous. The First Peloponnesian War So in short, Sparta had withdrawn itself after the Persian invasions and then been rocked by a devastating earthquake. Athens took full advantage of the weakness of Sparta and started throwing its weight around and bullying the small poles of the Aegean region. Athenian confidence was at an all-time high and at the end of the 460s BCE under the direction of Pericles. Athens would officially declare itself as no longer aligned with Sparta and would begin making alliances with Poles which would cause huge concerns for the Spartans. Firstly, they would befriend societies of Thessaly, which meant access to horses suitable as cavalry. Second, they would make an alliance with Argos, who were a traditional enemy of the Spartans. Going onwards, the polis of Megara decided to defect from the Peloponnesian League and align itself with Athens due to the fact that their neighbours at Corinth were becoming more powerful. All of these things would demonstrate a worrying shift in the balance of power towards Athens. Athens knew that their activity would make the Spartans and their allies very nervous about Athenian ambitions, and traditionally, if this sort of thing happens in a region of multiple nations, then the superpower will be actively opposed by the other nations, in order to curb their dominance. Athens was not blind to this, so they began building defensive walls around their cities, thoroughfares and ports. The Athenians would then defeat the enemies of the Megarans, namely the Corinthians, and this would be within the Saronic Gulf, a body of water surrounded by the Peloponnese, the Isthmus of Corinth and the Attica Peninsula. This would lead the Athenians into a conflict with their old rivals on the island of Aegina. Despite their attempts to resist the Athenians, Aegina surrendered to Athens and was incorporated into the Delian League, despite Corinthian opposition. Corinth was one of the more respected entities of the Greek lands, but they were powerless to stop the mighty Athenians. So the Athenians had got the better of the Corinthians who were allied to the Spartans. This was not good for the Spartans who had sent an army north into Boeotia. For the Spartans to reach Boeotia, they would need to march across the Isthmus of Corinth and continue northwards. Once the Spartan army had taken care of the affairs of Boeotia, they would attempt to march back south across the Isthmus to the Peloponnese. However, the Athenians decided to block the Spartans' route back. So the Spartans sat tight and waited 
for the Athenians' next move. The Athenian attack would trigger the Battle of Tanagra in 457 BCE. Many thousands of Athenian allied troops would attack the thousands of isolated Spartan soldiers in the meeting of the two armies of seemingly similar sizes. In a gruelling battle in which both sides suffered huge losses over the course of two days, it would actually be the Spartans who would win the battle. The remainder of the Spartan army was able to return back across the Isthmus of Corinth and back to their heartlands on the Peloponnese to regroup. The Athenians had been dealt a rare defeat, but the Spartans were so depleted that they may have only felt that they survived the battle rather than gain anything. This must have still been quite a shock to Athens who had scored victory over victory, even if mainly at sea, but against worthy opponents such as Corinth and Aegina. They may not have been expecting the Spartans to have shown such strength in the wake of their own struggles during the preceding decade. Some might accuse the Athenians of being somewhat complacent around the year 457 BCE as they had also decided to support an Egyptian rebellion against their Achaemenid Persian overlords. Although Athens and Sparta had had nothing to do with Thebes, after Thebes had supported the Persians at the Battle of Plataea in 479 BCE, the Spartans made a new alliance with them now that the Athenians were threatening to gain influence over the Spartan allies in Boeotia, and it might have been this desperate requirement to keep control of the Boeotian links that caused the Spartans to bravely venture out of the Peloponnese in the first place, something that they didn't traditionally like to do. If the Spartans had felt that they had had a narrow escape and that their Boeotian ties had been preserved, then they couldn't have been more mistaken. It did not take long for Athens to regroup and mount a new offensive when they marched back into Boeotia and engaged the Poles there in battle, at the Battle of Oenophyta, where the Athenians would score a crushing victory. By now there was no doubt who the Greek superpower was. Athens had always been highly respected for its naval power, but during the most intense phases of the Persian invasions of Greece, the Athenians had relied heavily on the abilities of the Spartans and their superior hoplite armies, which ruled the lands. Since the huge earthquake and Helot rebellions took place In the 460s BCE, the Athenians had expanded their imperial and colonial influence and in contrast to the Spartans had become more powerful. Regardless of how skilled and feared the Spartan hoplites were, the magnitude of Athenian power at this point in history was absolutely irresistible and it had taken no time at all for the Athenians to counterpunch after their defeat at the Battle of Tanagra. Huge defensive walls had been completed around Athens, its major port at Piraeus and even the thoroughfare between the city and the port. The Athenians, under the unrivalled leadership of Pericles, 
looked impossible to challenge and dominant over the Greek lands. The Greco-Persian Wars While the First Peloponnesian War was taking place, so were the Greco-Persian Wars which had never been resolved properly since the Greek victories at Plataea and Mycale in 479 BCE. So the Athenians were now in the habit of taking part in military engagements far and wide, such was the scope of their influence now. Athens was never stronger than the period after 460 BCE and they must have felt truly indestructible. So when a Libyan prince called Inaros called out to Athens for help, they responded. Now to understand this situation we need to pick up on the Egyptian story which was introduced to us during episodes 19 and 20 of volume 2. In these episodes we described the story of the 26th dynasty of Egypt who were the Egyptians traditionally based in the city of Sais who drove the Nubian dynasty out of Egypt. The Saite dynasty had links to the Libyan elite who had been involved in the rule of Egypt as well. In 525 BCE the Achaemenid king Cambyses II, son of Cyrus the Great, defeated the Saite dynasty and Egypt was integrated as a satrapy of the Persian Empire. 65 years later, and the Libyan prince Inaros, who was a descendant of the Saite line of pharaohs, decided that it was time that the Persians were moved out of Egypt and they knew that the Athenian knowledge of Persian war tactics would be invaluable to this cause. The Athenians would have seen a very rich and fertile society with whom they could strike a great trade alliance with in the Sayite Egyptians, so getting the Persians out of Egypt would have been in everybody's interests. The first exchanges in this episode of Egyptian history occurred in 460 BCE, so around the same time that tensions escalated on the Balkan Peninsula also. Pericles would authorise for there to be a concession of 200 sea vessels sent over to Egypt in support of Inaros's rebellion against the Achaemenids. The satrap of Egypt was the brother of King Xerxes I of Achaemenid Persia, Achaemenes. And this was the same Achaemenes who was in command of the Persian naval fleet during the second Persian invasion of Greece 20 years previous. Much of the exchanges of the Peloponnesian War is brought to us from the pen of the Athenian 5th century BCE historian Thucydides who lived through these wars himself. The Athenian intervention in Egypt is written in more detail by the 1st century BCE Sicilian Greek historian Diodorus Siculus. Initial exchanges went in favour of the rebels. They pushed up the Nile and engaged the Achaemenids at the Battle of Pampramis, where they scored a great victory, even killing Achaemenes in the process. 
the rest of the Achaemenids retreated to Memphis, where they were held under siege. Anywhere that the Athenians were involved, they were proving to be absolutely irresistible. Athens was successfully absorbing the attacks of the Spartan land army, they were dominating the lands of the Aegean, and they were scoring victories over the Persians anywhere they were meeting them in and around the Mediterranean Sea. This was the Athenian Golden Age. The Turn of Events Now that we have reached this point in the historical narrative, we should celebrate the success of the Athenians. We have followed their story for the last eight episodes and watched how they have grown from an aristocratically ruled city to a politically advanced polis, to a highly respected naval force, to an imperial power. The Persian king Xerxes I had died in 465 BCE and now his brother, Achaemenes, had been killed by the rebels assisted by the Athenians at the Battle of Pampromis. Xerxes' son took the Persian throne and his name was Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes I was certainly not willing to accept this situation in Egypt and sent commanders to Egypt to deal with it. A huge force of ships and military went into Egypt and ended the siege of Memphis and they chased the Allied rebels back to the island of Prosopitis on the Nile which the Persians themselves would hold under siege. We're not sure exactly what's happened next due to conflicting reports but we can be sure that the Athenians were forced to end their campaign and were either killed or simply retreated. The Sayite rebel Inaros was taken back to the Persian city of Susa and crucified. This was a feeling that the Athenians were rarely experiencing around this time. Athens would famously move the Delian League treasury from its home in Delos over to Athens, which seemed to symbolise the Athenian dominance of the Delian League and their own concerns about their national security. Athenian confidence had taken a bruising and even some of their attempts to politically influence some of their neighbours back home on the Balkan Peninsula were unsuccessful. So when 451 BCE came round, this would mark the 10-year anniversary of the ostracism of Cimon. And if you remember, Cimon was the leading political rival to Pericles. According to Athenian law, ostracisms lasted for 10 years and now that Pericles' leadership was being questioned by some, it would be the perfect time for Cimon to return. The first thing that Cimon would be asked to do would be to negotiate a five-year truce with the Spartans. With the truce successfully negotiated with Sparta, Cimon could now attempt to influence the situation with the Persians by attempting to defeat their forces in Cyprus. The forces under Cimon 
scored a victory against the Persians in Cyprus, but Cimon would not lead them back to Athens due to the fact that he died somewhere along the campaign and we can't be sure whether it was through sickness or injury. So once again, Pericles would not have a political rival, but Cimon's legacy was left in a very strong position. It is thought that at this point that the Achaemenid Persian king Artaxerxes I decided to negotiate a peace between the Achaemenids and Athens. Although there is contention about whether this actually happened, we still see an end to hostilities between Athens and Persia in around 449 BCE. If Athenians were starting to look at Pericles as a leader who was maybe not as good as some political opponents of Cimon might have led you to believe, a somewhat bizarre sequence of events may have helped to bolster Pericles' position as the head statesman of Athens. Ten years previous, Athens had moved northwards into the Boeotian Poles to subjugate them, believing this to weaken Spartan influence at a time when tensions were higher. Now, the Boeotian Poles believed that they had something about them that they could mount a successful rebellion against the Athenians. Pericles is reported to have been against the plan to march into Boeotia and put down the rebellions, believing that the situation was best left alone. But he was accused by some of cowardice, and a democratic decision was taken to go and put down the rebellion anyway. A general called Ptolemides would lead an Athenian army into the Battle of Coronea, and not only were the Athenians defeated, but Ptolemides was killed in the battle. Heracles was proven right for his caution, and it's possible that the Athenian faith in his judgement may have been improved. Some question why the Spartans did not try to capitalise on the situation and march on Attica to try and put down the vulnerable Athenians while they had the chance. But we just know that they chose not to. However, there really hasn't been many occasions where we have seen the Spartans be outwardly aggressive unless it was within the Peloponnese, or regarded as a necessity. So Athens may have been granted a reprieve, and they used this opportunity to consolidate their dominance of a rebellious island of Euboea. And still, being the major player in the Delian League, they felt like they were still in firm control of the Aegean. The Spartans, in the meantime, remained dominant over the Peloponnese and the Peloponnesian League. Well, that was a big in-depth episode. We explored a lot of the political situation. We explored a lot of the alliances and a lot of the psychology of the period going into the Peloponnesian War. Now, we're going to look at the conclusion of the Peloponnesian Wars next week and the real nitty-gritty of the Second Peloponnesian War, which is the, the 
period that most people associate with what is called the Peloponnesian War. So that's really one not to be missed next week. We're going to find out a lot about the conclusions and outcomes for all of the different polays involved. So thank you for listening to this week's one. We've got a good understanding of Athens and Sparta now going into this period and uh, I'm really grateful that you listened to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. And uh, if you did enjoy it and you do enjoy the podcast in general, don't forget that you can support the podcast. If you go to the History of the World podcast.com website, just click on the Patreon link and make a monthly donation. You can do that for as little as one dollar a month and all of your donations really do help to keep the podcast in a good place you know all of the contributions allow me to buy new material such as books and magazines etc that can help to enhance the information in the podcast and we have two new patrons this week who are now lifelong members of the history of the world podcast illuminati their names are trond christensen and michael lafleur so thank you very much and you are now lifelong members of the history of the world podcast illuminati now don't forget even if you do not make a contribution um you should all rate and review the podcast and keep it going and expose the podcast to more and more listeners and uh, it's great to see the podcast is getting more and more popular with each month that goes by there's more and more listens and um, hopefully we can keep this bandwagon rolling and you know tell the entire story of human history that would be great if we can make it there now then let's read out some of your emails Andrew Hill got in touch with the podcast and put, Hey there, Chris, I want you to know how much I enjoy the podcast. I really like the way you lay everything out for us. My background is in biology, but my passion is anthropology. Your sense of humour keeps me laughing and your opinions keep me interested. Well, thank you, Andrew. um, I, I don't rate my biological knowledge particularly highly, but hopefully my anthropological knowledge is a little bit better. Um, thank you for uh, writing in. I did have to inquire where you were coming from, and uh, I can see that you're in Arkansas in the USA. So great to know that you're listening from there, Andrew, and thanks for the message. Heather uh, Ben Yosef is um, or has been in touch and has put Hi, Chris. On my way to work today, I've been listening to your amazing summary episode of the Ancient Egypt series. As I'm passing by Tel Megiddo, I hear you mentioning the footmost the third battle at Megiddo. I was inspired by this and hope it's worth this thank you message. I enjoy the podcast very much and have thought a lot um, and theory while listening to you. I really like the way that you keep issues open when you know that there is not only one way for telling the story. Thank you, Keva. Uh, well, thank you very much indeed. And that's uh, great that, to know that um, people are actually driving past Tel Megiddo and picturing the stories that have been 
um, described in this podcast series. So that's very exciting for me to know that. It's great to know that the podcast is reaching um, countries such as Israel and the USA. Very, very diverse listening audience we've got now and it's fantastic so thank you very much for writing in Heather I also got a message from Bedad Merzai who wrote in and put hello I would like to express my most sincere appreciation for your great podcast I have never enjoyed reading or watching or listening to anything than your podcast when I listen to an episode of yours in Nick's channel the study of antiquity I imagined you as a teacher and said to myself He's a great teacher of history, second to none. Later, after I followed other videos in Nick's channel, I found you were a retired history teacher. I am very happy to have known you. I also would like to exchange some ideas about ancient Iran with you. Thank you. Um, well, you know, I'm going to say two things. I'm not actually a retired history teacher. I'm sorry to disappoint there. Um, that's uh, never been my profession. Um, I'm an amateur historian. Um, do you know, I'm actually like an amateur history media um, reporter, if you like, um, rather than an actual historian, I think, is probably the best way to describe me. Um, and, um, yeah, if you'd like to exchange some ideas about ancient Iran, um, you know, we've really uh, explored that period of history quite depthfully in the first five podcasts of this volume three and um i would love it if you could um sign up to the history of the world podcast forum and open up a thread there that everyone can be involved in so we can all discuss ancient iran together just come along to the um the history of the world podcast discussion forum you can find it in the interact section of the history of the world podcast dot com website and uh, start a discussion or join in one of the existing ones there's loads on there that you can get involved in i really want to see your opinions on the subjects contained in that forum well it's time to wrap up again for another week next week we should be um, reading out some more reviews and um, if i can seek out a few more of your messages i'll I'll read them out. If I haven't read your message out, please do give me a reminder or a nudge uh, just because I get highly confused with the amount of different places that I receive messages from. So uh, do please, do please remind me to read your message out. And next week we'll carry on this fascinating story about the rivalry between Athens and Sparta. So be sure to come back this time next week, don't miss it. Do you want more from the History of the World podcast? Then visit our website, historyoftheworldpodcast.com. You can join our discussion forum and find us on social media. Support the podcast for as little as $1 per month by clicking the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com the best ones will be read out be sure to rate and review the show wherever you listen to us